Scott and Jen and Jim Stock and Brian Roth and Mark Flinter all send a boy howdy to everybody. They said they miss you like crazy, but they're thrilled that they're where they are. And uh, man, I'm telling you, I have had, you know, we, we've done these trips a lot, of, a lot of times. This is for some reason, I, maybe it was just how short it was. The jet lag is about to kill me, man. I, I lay down at night and I'm just there for hours on end, just working it, man, just trying to get some sleep. And so, you know what? I'm hoping maybe I can join some of you guys today. <laughs> Fall asleep right in the big fat middle of this message. And, and you know what? If I see some of y'all doing that today, I might just, I might just come out there and curl up next to you, put my head on your shoulder, and we'll just have a big time together. But let me ask you to turn to Revelation chapter 16, and we'll continue our study of this incredible book. For those of you that may be a guest, the very last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. And this morning we're going to be looking at part four of the day when God has finally had enough. There is coming that day. I don't know if you saw the the day that I left for the Philippines. Uh, I, I read the paper that morning, and I don't know if you saw this, this article um, about a couple in Miami with their kid. Check this out. This looks like every, every church you ever saw in your life, didn't it? <laughs> the title of the article, Parents are Sentenced to Prison for Torturing Son. Listen to this. A husband and wife were sentenced to prison for torturing their son because he had an illness that made him vomit frequently. The article goes on and says, The 12-year-old boy was locked in a bathroom for a week and tied up and blindfolded with a bucket taped to his head. The parents admitted forcing the boy to eat his own vomit, beating his hands with wooden spoons, and dropping a sledgehammer on his feet, police said. It goes on in the article, and it comes down... This is the mother's response. I wanted to make him a good man to God and to society, she said. Who hasn't made mistakes? What happens to you when you read that? I'm, I'm telling you, man. I, this is the stuff that, that I've been trying to, to say for the last several weeks... What is it that causes God not to just exhale fire out of his nostrils to just blast people like that off of the planet? I'm just wanting to see, if, again, if y'all are as carnal as I am, man. I, I read that, and I don't know what to do with myself, you know? And I'm asking myself, oh my goodness, what must God think And the good news is, God doesn't, whatever I just said, exhale fire out of his nostrils to consume people like that. He deals with people like that with mercy and grace, patience, like I guess none of us could ever imagine. The, the scripture says he's, he's long-suffering.
But I just got to tell you, I do take great consolation in the fact that God is ticked about that stuff at the same time. I take great consolation in the fact that people like that don't just get by with it. What we're seeing in Revelation chapter 15 and 16 is God's wrath toward stuff like that and toward all kinds of sin. God's wrath is going somewhere. And what it says in Revelation chapter 15 and verse 1 is that God's wrath is being, listen to it, it's being filled up in seven containers that God calls vials. And what God is waiting for is the time when that seventh vial is filled up. And that's what's spelled out for us in Revelation 15. The filling up of these seven vials. And what we find out in the context is that during the tribulation period, that seventh vial is finally going to be full. And at that point, what is going to take place is the throne room of heaven is going to open. What Revelation 15:5 calls the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony is going to be opened. And seven angels are going to come in, the four beasts around the throne, one of the four beasts acting for all is going to take the seven vials and begin to distribute those to those seven angels. And what is going to take place is those seven angels will then bust out of the throne room of God and on God's command will begin to pour those vials out on the earth. And what it is, is the pouring out of God's wrath, which is really the culmination of 6,000 years of God's wrath, second after second and minute after minute, and hour after hour, and day after day, and week after week, and month after month, and year after year, and decade after decade, and century after century for the last six millenniums. All of God's wrath is being filled up. And at this point, at the end of the tribulation period, these seven angels are going to be cut loose, and they're going to begin to pour out God's wrath on this planet. And it is going to be a frightful, unbelievable time. We've been looking at it for several weeks now. We looked, first of all, at the judgment commanded in Revelation chapter 16 and verse 1, where John says, I heard a great voice out of the temple saying to the seven angels, Go your ways and pour out the vials of the wrath of God upon the earth. And then we began to look in verses 2 through 9 at the judgment commenced. These angels begin to bust out of the throne. They go and begin to pour out their vials. We saw the pouring of the first vial resulted in the traumatic sores. All of the people on this planet who took the mark of the beast, which according to Revelation 13, it means that they were going to have to bow and worship the Antichrist, the beast, and in order to buy or sell anything, they would have to do that. And what God says is every person who worshiped the beast, who took his mark, is going to break out with traumatic sores all over their body that will be more excruciating than anything that has ever been known to man. Incredible pain. The second one, in verse 3, goes to pour out his vial, and it results in the toxic seas, where he says the seas actually become blood. He says, as the blood of a dead man. 
The pouring of the third vial resulted in the tainted or the, the poisonous streams. Not only the salt water of the seas, but now the streams, the, the rivers and the lakes, and all of that becomes blood as well. And then on the pouring of the fourth vial, as we've seen, it's the torrid sun, where the sun begins to burn on this planet with a, a, a scorching heat. And then as we come to verse 10, and we did this our last time together, we came to a turning point, and this is Roman numeral 3 on your outline, the judgment completed. You see, the, the first four vials that we just talked about affected the natural elements. They affected the land, they affected the sea, the waters, and the sun. And as you can imagine, as we've talked about, we, we, we're just glazing over just to bring all this back into your remembrance. But the impact on human life through those first four vials has just been absolutely, it's unbelievable. But now as we come to the pouring of the fifth vial, what we found last time is that the domains of the beast are ruined. You see, in the first four vials, people are affected by everything that's going on. They're in incredible pain. There is a, a thirst that cannot be quenched because there is no water on the planet to drink. The, the sun is beginning to scorch them on top of the sores, and they're just being burned like a blowtorch. But while all this is going on, the Antichrist has still got his kingdom, and it looks as if he is still ruling in the world. And when we come to the pouring of that fifth vial, God hits a direct shot on the domain of the Antichrist. Look at verse 10. It says, And the fifth angel poured out his vial upon the seat of the beast, his place of authority, as it were, and his kingdom was full of darkness. And now, amidst all of the excruciating sores, the, the incredible thirst, the, the, the sun scorching people, now the earth is cast into utter darkness, and the result of it, go on, it says, and they gnawed their tongues for pain. That is, all of the people on this planet that will be alive during the tribulation period are in such excruciating pain that they are actually gnawing their tongue. This is certainly a result of the pain. It's also a result of the, the fact that they are, are so thirsty. But while they're gnawing their tongues with their pain, what is just incredible, look at it as it goes on. It says, they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores and repented not of their deeds. Instead of all of this, finally bringing them to where, you know, as a little kid, you remember you put their arm behind the guy's back and get them to say, Uncle, you know what you find out? Man, he is just incredibly rebellious and has a real tough time saying uncle to God. They blasphemed God, knowing that all of this is coming from him. And yet they refuse to repent and rather blaspheme God. And that leads us today to letter B on your outline, the pouring of the sixth vial. And what we'll see here is the directives for the battle are revealed. The directives for the battle are revealed. And of course, we're talking about the infamous battle of Armageddon. And would you look with me at Revelation chapter 16 and let's pick up in verse 12. 
And the sixth angel poured out his vial upon the great river Euphrates. And the water thereof was dried up, that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, for they are the spirits of devils, working miracles, which go forth unto the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And he gathered them together into a place called in the Hebrew tongue Armageddon. And now, Lord, as we begin to approach this passage, we realize that this is your book. This is your time. And we set ourselves before you in humility, asking you to take these words today and allow us to understand them. Open the eyes of our understanding. Allow us today to see wondrous things from your word that we might be changed not so that we can be filled with more knowledge but so that we can be conformed into your image and Lord again for those that are here today that unless something takes place in their life will be a part of what we have just read about I, I pray that today you would open their eyes and may this be the day of their salvation we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, now let, let's start working our way through the passage, and, and let's see what, what God has for us here. Uh, look again at verse 12. And the sixth angel poured out his vial upon the great river. And, and let me just, as we're moving into this today, let me just remind you of how great this passage actually is. You remember that when we started chapter 16, I would have told you that this is the greatest chapter in the Bible. The word great appears more times in this chapter than any place in the Bible. In fact, it appears in this chapter 11 times. In fact, from verse 12 down through the rest of the chapter, the word great appears some nine times. Nine times in 11 verses, God uses this this word great, there's something that he just keeps trying to pound into our thinking about the greatness of this thing. And, and notice what he says. The sixth angel poured out his vial upon the great river Euphrates. Okay, now the Euphrates River is a very significant river in the Bible. Uh, just as the Bible calls the Mediterranean the great sea, in that same way, the Bible calls the Euphrates the great river. As we begin to just compare Scripture with Scripture, as you go through the Bible, what you'll find is that the Euphrates is mentioned 21 times in the Bible. Five of the times that you find it, it is referred to as the Great River. Okay, and so, of course, the question we would ask ourselves is, why does God call this the Great River? And, and for several reasons. First of all, it's the longest and most significant river in the Middle East. This river flows some 1,800 miles long. It's between 300 and 1,200 yards wide. So it is an 
a great river. I mean, 1,800 miles is an incredible distance, but it's also called great for another reason. For the past 6,000 years, the Euphrates River has served as a great dividing line of the countries of the east and the west in that part of the world. It's, it's, it's a great river because of what it actually has done. It has provided those, those boundary lines, and if you check the historical record, what you begin to find uh, concerning this river is that this river has been a great hindrance for armies all down throughout history. They have come to this river, and it's been a, a point of impasse. And so God is just all the way through the Bible and through history, through the, the greatness of the river, just showing us time and time again just how great this river actually is. Something that I think is great about it is if you go back and you look at the very first mention of the word Euphrates in the Bible, you find it in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 14. And the Euphrates is found near the place where sin had its beginning, right? It's one of the boundaries of the Garden of Eden. If you look at it in its last mention in the Bible, which is where we are here in Revelation chapter 16 and verse 12, it's the place where sin reaches its height. So on one hand, the Euphrates is the place where sin began, but it's also the place where sin is finally judged. So, verse 12 says that the sixth angel poured out his vial upon the great river Euphrates, and as he does, watch, watch what happens, okay? John goes on to say, and the water thereof was dried up. Okay, here is this, this incredible river, 1,800 miles long. 300 to 1,200 yards wide. Uh, it's between 10 and 30 feet deep, according to what time of the, the season it is. And what God says is as this sixth vial is poured out, that incredible great river is going to be dried up that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. And, of course, this is the time that Isaiah spoke about as he referred to this in Isaiah chapter 11. In verse 15, it says, And with his mighty wind shall he shake his hand over the river. And the rest of the verse goes on to say, listen, And shall smite it in the seven streams, and make men go over dry shod. Isaiah prophesied of this time that we see here in Revelation chapter 16. It's also the time of which Zechariah spoke in Zechariah chapter 10 and verse 11. Zechariah said, And he shall pass through the sea with affliction, and shall smite the waves in the sea, and all the deeps of the river shall dry up. And the pride of Assyria shall be brought down, and the scepter of Egypt shall depart away. So this is a time that was prophesied throughout the Word of God, but I want you to keep in mind that the, the drying up of the Euphrates is the result of the pouring out of this sixth vial. Now, remember what the vials are, okay? They are the wrath of God. This is God's vengeance being poured out, and you come and you see this one, and it's so unlike all of the others that you just got to kind of step back for a second and say, big, hairy deal. Who cares if the water is dried up? I mean, it doesn't sound like anything uh, of significance until you begin to see the reason that this sixth vial 
is poured out. You see, verse 12 goes on to say that the water was dried up, listen now, that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. Okay? And, and understand this. At this point in the tribulation period, Satan, in the person of the Antichrist, is going to be in, in a heap of trouble. That's what the fifth vial was all about. The domain of the Antichrist and his seat, his authority, God just delivered a, a direct attack right on that through the pouring of the fifth vial. He hit a direct hit on the domain of the Antichrist. Okay? Now, as a result of that, here you have these gigantic armies of the East. And what they want to do is they want to rally to the cause of the Antichrist. They want to assemble themselves around the Antichrist. But you see, if they're going to do that, if they're going to get to the domain where the Antichrist is, if they're going to come to help him in his task, there's something they've got to do. They've got to cross the Euphrates. And do you remember what we've seen in all of the vials? Remember as we were going through there, what I kept showing you is that what God is doing through this, this pouring out of these seven vials is he's giving man exactly what he, exactly what he wants. Remember, we went through that and we saw that on all of them. And you know what God does here? He gives man exactly what he wants. It's as if God is saying, oh, you want to... You want to go to the rescue of the Antichrist? You want to assemble yourself around, around the Antichrist? Fine. Here. Let me, just, let me just pave the way for you. Let me just remove every hindrance that you got in your way. And I know this Euphrates is going to be a, a, a big problem at this point in, in time. And so listen, let me just help you in your task. Let me just remove all of those boundaries and give you exactly what you want. In much the same way that God parted the Red Sea so that the children of Israel, you remember, could walk through on dry land. And you remember as they did that, it became a lure that led to the destruction of the Egyptian armies because they came in there. And in the same way, with the drying up of the Euphrates, you know what it actually is? It's God luring them in and saying, Listen, I want to give you exactly what you want. You want to get here to the domain of the Antichrist. You want to assemble yourself around. Here you go. And it's ultimately, just like with the Egyptians, it's going to lead to the destruction of, of the, the, the kings of the East. This is God's death trap, if you will. Now, let's talk for just a second about what God has in mind here when he talks about the kings of the East. The kings of the east. Because you know, we've got to look at this and realize that the event that we're reading about is something that's going to take place on this planet in the very, very near future. So we can just kind of look around and we can begin to determine some things about who this actually is. One of the things you might want to keep in mind as we're talking about this is that the, the vast majority of the people on this planet live east of the Euphrates. Now, I realize that not everybody here is a geography buff and, you know, know all kinds of things about that, but I would just remind you that China and India are east of the Euphrates. And do you realize, folks, that China and India alone comprise 40% of the world's population right now? 
The kings of the east, God says, way back in 95 A.D. when he gave John this revelation, God evidently knew something about this period of time on this planet and that 40% of the world's population would be in that part of the world and really in just in China and India alone and we're not, we haven't even mentioned Russia, Japan and other nations that are in that part of the world. And you see, that's it's really very, very significant. You know, we can look at that and, you know, say, okay, yeah, whatever. But you see, the thing that makes that so significant is in Revelation chapter 9 and verse 16, as it reveals the tribulation period through the sounding of the trumpets, the sixth trumpet also talks about the Euphrates, and it talks about this incredible army that would come from the east. And you know what it says? It says that that army from the east would be... 200 million strong. 200 million people coming from the east. Now, what's significant about that is that in 95 AD, when John wrote, do you realize there were not 200 million people on the planet? And so for years and years, people said, well, you know, the, you know, the book of Revelation, you really can't understand that. You really can't take it literally because, good night, John talked about an army of 200 million. And God knew exactly what the score would be at this period of time on the earth. In fact, the CIA reported in 1994 that Red China has over 330 million men of military age it's not going to be any problem for a 200 million man army to gather. Red China alone has 330 million people of that age. But listen, the report went on to say that they had at that point in 1994 a standing army of 184,515,412. So this is not a problem, and if you're just thinking that this is just a little bit freaky and just too hard to actually believe, believe it. God knows exactly what he's talking about and has prophesied this 2,000 years ago. But the question is, I mean, what would cause the armies of the East to make this incredible journey to this part of the world? Now, you've got to factor in the, to this that these, these soldiers, remember, those first five vials have already been poured out. Do you understand? These soldiers have got these excruciating sores all over their body. They are famished from thirst because there is no water to drink on the planet. They, they're being scorched by the sun on top of all of these things. And to boot, they're making this journey in darkness. In total darkness, as we compared Scripture with Scripture, we saw as this lines up with the, the plagues that uh, affected Egypt, it, it's a darkness that itself could be felt. So what is it that drives these kings of the East and their armies to come to this battle? And this is spelled out for us in verses 13 and 14. Would you look at it? John says, And I saw three unclean spirits, like frogs, come out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are the spirits of devils working miracles, 
which go forth unto the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. Now, John begins to say that what he saw at this period of time, and, and, and I'll just hang on it, we're going to just work our way phrase by phrase through this so that we can make sure that we understand what it is that's actually drawing these people. But the first thing that he says is he says, I saw three unclean spirits. He sees something that is just, I mean, freaky, y'all. I mean, it's like something out of a, a, a horror movie. And there's no question about who these unclean spirits or what these unclean spirits are because he identifies them specifically in verse 14 that they are the spirits of devils. Okay, what we would commonly refer to today as demons. These unclean spirits that he sees, he identifies as the spirits of devils or the spirits of demons. And notice what he says about them. He says that these unclean spirits were like frogs. Okay? Now, again, man, this is, this is like no horror movie that you have ever imagined. This, this past week when I was in the, in the Philippines, uh, Sam and Lori and Jackson and Savannah left their dog over there in the Philippines. And over there in that breezeway next to the house, the dog dish, you know, for the food and the, the, the water dishes. I don't know if this was like that when y'all were there. But we were talking about this passage here because they were asking where I was and, you know, teasing about the fact when they left, we were in Revelation 14, and you mean you're all the way to chapter 16, you know. So we were talking about this, this passage with the frogs. And so as I'm talking about that, she says, come here. She says, I know it's going gonna, it's gonna to be there. It, it was at nighttime. And she says, hey, come, come out here. And so Jen takes me out into the little breezeway area outside the house to the dog's water dish. And lo and behold, here is this, this frog that, I mean, it, it would, I, I would have to put my two hands around it like this. And it's just, you know, <laughs> sitting right there in the big fat dog's water dish. And she says, man, it comes here. It comes here every night. And I'm thinking to myself as I'm looking at this frog, just imagine... Me opening my mouth up here and belching out this huge frog. I mean, it might just kind of cause you to lose your appetite just a little bit. I mean, you know, I mean, that, oh, I'm looking at that thing and it is just gross, man. Just, just gross. And, and so I'm, as I'm working through the passage, I'm, I'm wondering what in, the, what in the world is this all about? And in Leviticus chapter 11, verses 10 and 41, what it lets us know is that frogs are unclean animals, okay? We know that these are unclean spirits, and so he says they are like frogs. They're unclean. In fact, what it says in Leviticus chapter 11 is that they are an abomination, okay? So we're beginning to understand just a little bit of what God had in mind here. But to be quite honest with you, I haven't been able to do a detailed study on the nature of frogs and go into all of that. But one of the, uh, the writers uh, that has done work in the book of Revelation is a guy by the name of Sice. Would you listen and look at, at this quote? He says, They are frog-like in that they come forth out of the pestiferous quagmires of the universe 
do their work amid the world's evening shadows and creep and croak and defile the ears of the nations with noisy demonstrations till they set all the kings and armies of the whole earth in enthusiastic commotion for the final crushing out of the Lamb and all his powers. Now, that's the best I can do for you. I, I'm not sure I understand everything that the man says. I'm not sure I pronounced all the words right. But I am beginning to get, get an understanding of the fact that frogs come out at night. In fact, what she said is, you know what? It's never here in the daytime. And here in the, the darkness and from the, the nasty, stenchy, watery places of the world, here comes forth these unclean spirits like frogs. And notice what else John says in verse 13. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of, now watch this now, the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. Now, we've seen these three characters before. We saw this when we were in Revelation chapter 13. And you remember the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet comprise what is commonly referred to as the satanic or unholy trinity. Do you remember back in Isaiah chapter 14 when Lucifer, who was the anointed cherub of God, began to vaunt himself? What it says in Isaiah 14 is that his desire above desires was that he might be like, what? The Most High. He wanted to be like God. And you see, Lucifer would understand that God has manifested himself in three persons. And so at this point in the tribulation period, what he is going to do is fulfill the counterfeit or the satanic uh, trinity. The, the dragon, of course, is in, in reference to Satan. We saw that in, in chapter 12 and verse 9. He is the anti-God or the, the counterfeit father. The beast, of course, is the Antichrist. We saw this in chapter 13. He is the counterfeit son. And then the false prophet, which of course is the anti-spirit or the, the counterfeit spirit. So, he, he sees these unclean spirits and they come out of the mouth of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. But as I'm studying this, this thing and, and I'm just watching the way that God is using the words here, he, he emphasizes that they come out of the mouth. Three times he says, they come out of the mouth. They come out of the mouth. And I'm asking myself again, now what's the significance of coming out of the mouth? Why didn't he say just come out of the mouth of the beast and the, or the, the dragon and the beast and the false prophet? Why? Come out of the mouth. Come out of the mouth. Come out of the mouth. And you know what? You just got to love the way that God puts his book together. Because you see, when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back to the earth to fight this battle that we're talking about right here, do you know what the scripture says? In Revelation chapter 19 and verse 15, what it does is it uses the same exact phraseology that is used right here in Revelation 16 in connection with the satanic trinity. Revelation 19, 15 says, And out of his mouth goeth, not a frog, but a sharp sword, listen, that with it he should smite 
the nations. Here is this, these unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the satanic trinity. Here comes the Lord Jesus Christ and something's coming out of his mouth as well. A sharp, clean, two-edged sword, which of course is the, the word of God. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 8, check this out. And then shall that wicked, that's the Antichrist, be revealed, watch it now, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth. And God just says, look for something to be coming out of their mouth, this unclean stuff that's coming out of the mouth of the satanic trinity. But do understand that when my son comes back, something's going to come out of his mouth. It's going to be a sharp two-edged sword. That word is spirit, Jesus said, and he will consume them with the spirit of his mouth. So John sees these, these three unclean spirits coming out of the mouth of the satanic trinity. And I want you to notice what they're doing, okay? He identifies what they actually are in verse 14. For they are the spirits of devils. But now watch this now. They're working miracles. These spirits begin to go into all the parts of the world. And they're working miracles. Now, would you just look at verse 14? Now, I've got to tell you. I get in a lot of trouble every time that we come to this point. Because there are always people that are in this room that come from a, a persuasion uh, in this day to where, you know, they think that miracles are the happening thing. And if, you know, if you really believed God, then you would believe in miracles and you would believe in these guys on TV that are doing all of this stuff. And, and so I come along... And I begin to say that not every person who does miracles is working by the Spirit of God, but by a demonic, satanic spirit. And, and, and you know what the word on the streets is? I, I'm serious, is a heart attack. That what I do, in fact, some of the, the charismatics refer to me as the guy that blasphemes the Holy Spirit. That, that's how I, I'm referred to because I make such incredible statements. And you see, that's much like what the Pharisees did in Jesus' day in, because what they did is they attributed to Satan the power that Jesus was doing th those miracles and they come along and say, you know what, I'm doing the same exact thing. Okay, now ju just forget me, forget you know anything at all about the Bible. Just look at verse... 14, and just tell me, who is it that's doing these miracles? They are the spirits of devils working miracles. Now, now listen, there's two things that you must consider when you're dealing with something that looks miraculous or something that looks supernatural. The first thing that you need to do is consider the source. Consider the source. What you've got to do when you're confronting something supernatural is you've got to force yourself to determine the source of the power. You see, demons also have power. 
And so we've got to ask ourselves, when we see something miraculous, we've got to ask ourselves, is it divine power that's in operation here, or is it diabolical power? And people say, well, you know, the devil doesn't have power to heal, he doesn't have power to... Listen, at this point in the tribulation period, these unclean demonic spirits are going to heal people. They will raise the dead. They'll speak in any tongue you want them to speak in. And I'm talking about the biblical gift. They'll cause people to see Mary anywhere they want people to see Mary. It'll all be there. All the stuff that you're beginning to see the foreshadowing of on this planet, it's all going to be taking place through these demonic spirits. So we've got to, first of all, consider the source. The second thing that you've got to do as you're talking about this whole thing of miracles and the supernatural is consider the history. Consider the history of miracles. When confronting something that's supernatural, you must keep in mind that not every age is a miracle age. Do you know that? If you go to the Bible and you just let the Bible be the Bible, what you begin to see is that divine miracles were a common phenomenon only during the time when God was revealing His Word. Now listen, what I'm telling you right there, most people on this planet never factor into the whole equation of miracles. In fact, what they'll say about me, what they'll say about you, if you believe what we're talking about right here, is that you guys don't believe the Bible. Because you see, the Bible says Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever, and the God of the Bible is a God of miracles, and so this makes this a miracle age. No. If you're going to let the God of the Bible be the Bible, what you're going to do is you're going to go there, and what you're going to find out, the only time miracles took place on this planet was during a period of time when God was revealing His Word. If you go back and you begin to look at it, what you begin to see is the time of Moses, the writer of the first five books of the Old Testament. You know what? It was a time of miracles. It, the time of the Old Testament prophets. They come along and, man, these guys are doing all this miraculous stuff, you know? You know what? God was revealing His Word through those men. But you know what? After the prophets are done, you go for 400 years when not only is there nothing miraculous on this planet, there ain't nothing coming from heaven. There ain't a word from God. It's silent, man. And then we pick up into another miracle age, the time of Jesus and the apostles. And you know what God was doing? He was revealing his word once again, what we call the New Testament. And folks, listen. It's a historical fact. Go check it out. Prove me wrong. Go back in history and find out if you can find in the second century, the third century, the fourth century, the fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth, eleventh, twelfth, thirteenth, fourteenth, fifteenth, sixteenth, seventeenth, eighteenth, nineteenth century. See if you can find the God of the Bible doing miracles like you saw him do during the time of Jesus and the apostles. You're not going to be able to find it. You know why? Because God wasn't revealing His Word. His Word was complete. And then a group of people right at the turn of the 20th century began to 
enter into this whole arena of miracles and they started splashing God's name all over the top of them. And it has just increased and increased and increased all through the 20th century and is ever-present as we move into the 21st century. What you need to understand, this is not a miracle age. Now, so, someone's going to be here today and say, You mean, you don't believe God can do miracles? Man, I believe that with all of my heart. I believe God is God. I believe God can do whatever God jolly well chooses to do. And I do believe that there are some times when it works out in His sovereign plan, when He does choose to miraculously heal somebody, but I'll just guarantee you, arena where somebody's pumping an organ, getting everybody jumping up and down, and, you know, doing that. I'm just telling you, there's nothing, there's nothing that infuriates me more than to see that trash and see God's name thrown about it and people, you know, swinging a Bible talking about, there's the power of God. It, it is the God of this world. This is not a miracle age. However, they're still coming. A miracle age. And listen, during the tribulation period, you know what? It's going to be a miracle age again because this is the time of the second coming. It's the time when God is revealing He who is called the, the Word of God. He's going to be revealed on this planet. And listen, it will most definitely be a time of miracles. Moses and Elijah, who represent the Old Testament, the Law and the Prophets, Moses and Elijah, the two witnesses that we saw back in chapter 11, are going to come to this planet. And you know what? They're going to be exercising miraculous power. But you've got to understand something. While they're doing that, Satan, through these unclean spirits that come out of the mouth of the dragon and the beast and the, the false prophet, he is going to have these spirits that are going to go in, be going to every part of the world doing some of the most incredible things that have ever been done on this planet. And, and look at verse 14 again. They're the spirits of devils working miracles which go forth unto the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. And please understand, and we'll try to do this quickly, this is the day to which the entire Bible is pointing. And that day is what, y'all? It's the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. This is the great day of God Almighty. And you know why it's a great day for Him, y'all? Because it's the day when Satan finally gets what he deserves. You remember in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15... What God said as he came down into that garden is that there was going to come a day when Satan's head was going to be crushed. And on this day, it's going to happen. The Lord Jesus Christ is going to come back to the Mount of Olives and under his feet will be the head of the Antichrist, Satan personified. And he'll take him then and cast him into the bottomless pit for a period of a thousand years. It's the day. And it's a great day for God because Satan is finally going to get what he has coming to him. But it's great for another reason, and this is what we are talking about at the beginning. This is the day when lost man 
finally gets what he deserves. Now, now listen, some of the people that are in this room today, you are lost. And I don't say that to, to get in your face or anything like that. You are lost from a relationship with God. You've never come into a relationship with Him. And you see, what God wants to give you today is something you don't deserve. He wants to give you grace. He wants to pour out His mercy upon you. He wants to have a love relationship with you. And listen, there ain't nobody that has ever lived that is deserved to have that because we have all chosen the way of sin which is the way against God and what every single one of us deserves is hell but now listen if you'll sit here today and say yeah whatever I'm not real interested in that whole you know relationship with God thing you know what you got to understand, one of these days, you will get what you deserve. Along with every lost man on the planet. And we are fast moving toward that great day of God Almighty when not only Satan gets what he deserves, but lost man also gets what he deserves. But you see, this is the great day of God Almighty for another reason. This is the day when the Lord Jesus Christ finally gets what he deserves as well. This is the day when he comes to set up his kingdom on the earth and for the first time in 6,000 years on this planet, he finally is worshipped the way that he deserves to be worshipped. He finally receives, as the psalmist cried out for, he finally receives the glory that is due his name. See, it's the great day of God Almighty because Everybody gets on that day what they deserve. You know what? There's only one group of people on that day who don't get what they deserve. And you know who it is? It's those of us in this room that have been redeemed. He created us. We were lost from a relationship with him. And he bought us back with his own blood. And because of that, check it out, man. We don't get what we deserve. But on the great day of God Almighty, every person is going to get what they deserve. And notice what it says in the middle of verse 14. They are the spirits of devils working miracles, which go forth unto the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. You see, what you've got to understand is these demon spirits are out there doing these miracles because they're wanting to persuade the kings of the east and their armies to move themselves into the place of this battleground. The mission of the demons is to gather all of the world's rulers and armies to join forces from the east to do battle with God himself. They're on this mission. They're going to do all of the things that the rulers and the people of this earth want them to do so that they'll say, oh my goodness, they're gods. I'm not sure what they're actually going to be whispering in their ears at that point. But these people have already defied God and now these demonic spirits are going to be put doing every miracle that needs to be done so that they can lure these people. And according to Revelation chapter 17, verses 12 to 14... There's actually going to be 
ten kings that are going to be involved in, in this thing. We'll get to that when we get to chapter 15. Okay, now, or, or, or chapter 17 and 18. Now, 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 now look, look at the passage. Look at your Bible. I know you've got a lot of things going on with your study sheet and all that. I want you to look at your Bible for a second. Okay, we, we come to the end of verse 14. And it says, To gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. Now, verse 15. I mean, if you had been studying this like I've been studying this, you're going to come to verse 15 and say, What in the world is that doing here? Because you'll notice... Verse 14, or verse 15 doesn't seem to fit because these are the words of Jesus Christ himself. Listen, he hasn't spoken since chapter 1. And John's talking about all these things. And, and all, I mean, you can just go through. And I saw in verse 13. He, he, this, he's telling you what he saw. And then all of a sudden, Jesus speaks. Bam! It's like this big parenthesis right there in the middle of the passage. And then verse 16, And he gathered them together into a place called in the Hebrew tongue Armageddon. And what you begin to find out is you could read this thing, go from verse 14, look at the end of it, to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty, verse 16, and he gathered them together into a place called in the Hebrew tongue Armageddon. Okay, so let's just do this. Let's just skip verse 15 for just a second, okay? We'll come back, but it's a parenthesis, Okay? So let's, let's look down at, at verse 16. It says, And he gathered them together. Okay, now, who gathered them together? Who's the he? God, right? It, it takes you back to the end of verse 14. To gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. Okay, so the he... Is God Almighty. But now, would you look at verse 14? I, I thought that what it said is that the spirits of the devils were doing these miracles so that they could gather them to the battle. I, isn't that what it says? Okay, so, so which is it? Is it God gathering them or is it Satan gathering them? I love you. You're good, man. You, you've learned. The answer is yes. And what you begin to find out as you compare Scripture with Scripture is actually there's three reasons that they gather. First of all, they gather because God wants them there. Isaiah chapter 34, verse 2. Just, just jot down the references. You can look at it on the screen. Isaiah 34, 2. For the indignation of the Lord is upon all nations, and His fury upon all their armies. He hath utterly destroyed them. Watch this now. He hath delivered them to the slaughter. Joel chapter 3, verse 2. I will also gather all nations. I is God. God says, I'll gather all nations and will bring them down into the valley of Jehoshaphat. Zechariah chapter 14, verse 2, God says, For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle. Zephaniah chapter 3 and verse 8, God says, For my determination is to gather the nations that I may assemble the kingdoms to pour upon them my indignation, even all my fierce ang anger. And of course, we saw it right here in Revelation chapter 16 and verse 16. It says, And he, God, 
gathered them together into a place called in the Hebrew tongue Armageddon. But they are not just there because God wants them there. They are there because Satan wants them there. And this is back in verse 14. The spirits of devils work in miracles which go forth unto the kings of the earth and the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. And then the third reason, the people of the world gather there because man wants to be there. He wants to be there. Back in Revelation chapter 11 and verse 18, what it says is the nations were angry. And we've seen that all the way through this chapter, haven't we? They're ticked off at God because of everything that's happening. And they blaspheme His name. They refuse to repent. They're angry. Man wants to be there because he's ticked off at God. And evidently, what these unclean spirits with their miracles have actually done is cause man to think that he can assemble himself against God. Because you see, man is going to know at this point where Jesus Christ is coming back. Because remember in Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, the angel clearly said... He's going to come back the same way you saw him go. You, you're sitting right here at the Mount of Olives? Check it out. He's going to come back right here. It's spelled out for you in the book of Zechariah. The people will know it. And evidently, these unclean spirits are going to work these miracles and begin to dupe man and get him all worked up, get him all angry, and they're going to assemble themselves. And I want you to turn with me to Psalm 2 and, and let the psalmist tell you what's going to take place at this period of time. And I'm about to overcome my jet lag right now. <laughs> okay, just one more hour to go. <laughs> Psalm 2, the psalmist says, Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? Listen, at this point, the nations are going to be angry. They're going to rage and they're going to imagine this vain thing. Check this out. The kings of the earth set themselves it's exactly what we're seeing over in Revelation 16 and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed you know what the word anointing anointed is in the Hebrew Messiah they're going to be against his Messiah saying let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us Let's get him. Hey, y'all, I think we can take him. Let's all gather together. I love it. Verse 4. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Then shall he speak unto them, just as it says in Revelation 15 and 16, in his wrath, and vex them, in his sore displeasure. Verse 9, Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. That's what's going to happen. And so you know what the psalmist says? Look at it. Be wise. What, what's the next word? Now. Therefore, O ye kings, be instructed, ye judges of the earth, now, this is what's going to happen to all the kings and all the rulers and all the judges and all their armies. This is what's going to happen to them during the tribulation period when his wrath is poured out. And so he says, so now listen, now is the time to do something about it. Because if you wait and you reject him, 
you will be the ones that he's talking about right here. You'll be duped by those unclean spirits. You will believe their lie. You will assemble together. And so he says, be wise now, therefore. Verse 11, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son. Come into a personal love relationship with him. Lest he be angry and ye perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. Now is the time for people in this room that have never entered into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. I'm telling you what the Bible says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 is when you hear the proclamation of the truth of the Word of God and because you have pleasure in your own sin, because you have pleasure in unrighteousness, what God says is you will believe the lie of the Antichrist and the unclean spirits that go into every part of the world and what we're reading about today. And man, I wish I could get you to see the, the reality of this. What we're reading about today will be fulfilled in you. And so he says, now is the time to deal with this. Now is the time to kiss the Son. Embrace Him as your only Savior. And then, let's look at this last thing. And he gathered them together into a place called, in the Hebrew tongue, Armageddon. The, the word Armageddon means the, the city of Megiddo. The city of Megiddo. You, you could go to Israel right now and there is a literal city of Megiddo. The, the word, the, the prefix of this could also mean the hill of Megiddo. And, and actually, what it would seem by the terrain of that part of the world from everything that I've read is actually the, the hill country surrounding the plain of Megiddo is the place that John is, is, is seen here, where he's he able to look down into this, this incredible valley where this battle is actually going to take place. And th this is just wild. Napoleon Bonaparte came, and he was on those hills and began to look at that part of the world. And this is what he said, and I quote, this is the ideal battleground for all the armies of the world. And little did he know that he was actually saying what the Bible had prophesied and would come to pass. And also, he didn't actually realize that this was the place of many other battles, and you're not going to have time to be able to jot all of these, these down. Don't let it frustrate you. But just so that you can have it in your mind, this place that God's talking about. This is the place where Deborah and Barak defeated the Canaanites in Judges chapter 4 and 5. This is the place where Gideon defeated the Midianites in Judges chapter 7. This is the place where the Philistines defeated and killed Saul in 1 Samuel 31. It's where David defeated Goliath in 1 Samuel 17. It's where an Egyptian king killed Josiah in 2 Kings 23. But what I want you to understand is the result of this battle. They're all gathered together like we saw in Psalm 2. 
They've been deceived, and all of the world is ticked off at God. And they're going to, they're just waiting for him to come out of heaven, man, because they're going to stomp him. And what it says in Revelation chapter 14, verse 20, again, talking about this time, we looked at this a while back ago. Revelation 14, 20, it says, And the winepress was trodden without the city, and blood came out of the winepress, even unto the horses' bridles, by the space of a thousand and six hundred furlongs. While they're all gathered together, and, I mean, imagine this mass of humanity, 200 million just out of the east. That's not from the west. You, you figure probably 400 million people gathered together against God. And God sees that area like a wine press. And the Lord Jesus Christ is going to come back out of heaven and he's going to stomp 400 million cavalrymen like little grapes. And God says what's going to happen is the blood is going to be in this stream that is going to go at least three feet high for 160 to 200 miles long. He'll laugh. But the judgment is coming. And if this sounds freaky, it is. But it's real. All right, man, this this took a this went a lot faster with with my jet lag uh, in the warm up. But let's go back to verse fifteen. Okay, what's up with this? Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked. And they see his shame. Now, let's just think about this. He says, I come as a, a thief, which is always a reference in the Bible to the day of the Lord, not the rapture. Okay, so now wait, 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 wait. What's he talking about here? I, I come as a thief. You see, a thief comes, and he comes quickly, and he comes unexpectedly, right? But you see, a thief normally comes to take something that is not his. And in that way, he is not like a thief because he is coming back to take what is his. He's coming back to take vengeance. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, and he's coming back. And he's going to take what is his, but he's going to come at this point now, just before this battle... He's going to come, he says, as a thief, and there are going to be some people who are going to be blessed. And folks, we talked about this in chapter 14. It was a new truth for many of you at that point. But what you have here, the reason that in the flow of this context, the reason verse 15 just pops in there so unexpectedly is because he comes like a thief. And what you got right here, is a post-tribulation rapture. Now listen, we'll all have been raptured years previous. But before his judgment is actually poured out, when he is coming at his second coming, there is going to be a rapture. Do you, do you remember? 
Not everybody bows their knee to the Antichrist. Not everybody takes his mark. Do you remember back in chapter 12? Do you remember that remnant of people that went to Petra and he fed them for three and a half years? There's still some people on this planet who have trusted in God. And just before this battle, when he comes to stomp the entire world like grapes, you know what happens? He removes them like a thief, unexpectedly. But he takes what is his. And some of you are going, I'm just telling you, I just can't see this for the life of me. You know why? Because you probably never put Matthew chapter 24 into its context. Okay, watch this now. Same context. Matthew 24, verses 29 to 31. Immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened. Hello? Sound like Revelation 16 to you at all? And the moon shall not give her light, and the stars shall fall from the heaven, and the powers of the heaven shall be shaken. And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Heaven is opened, and he's making his descent. Now watch this. And he shall, at that point, he's not back yet. At that point... He shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Tribulation context. Right at the end of the tribulation, as Jesus Christ is coming back, there is removal of all of the people who have not bowed their knee to the Antichrist and have been a follower of Jesus Christ through that tribulation period. This is why Jesus says, in Matthew 24, 13, he that endureth to the end shall be saved. And what we find out is they'll be raptured out before the great day of God Almighty. Now, what a passage, huh? Phew! I'm so glad to be done with that one, man. But listen. There's some of you folks that are here today. And, and I've prepared this today. Just thinking in terms of people that maybe we're going to be here for the first time. And I know this is all bizarre. But I think that you are able to see today. You talk about stuff that's supernatural on this planet. This is a supernatural book. What we've done is we've gone all over the Bible this morning. And you know what God has done? He just shows you how everything lines up exactly the way that he says it's going to line up. We're living at the time where all of these things, it's not hard for us to believe it. You know what? Do you realize for centuries and centuries and centuries, even people who believe the Bible came to this passage and said, this is impossible because how could you ever gather all of the armies of the world in one place. And do you realize this week I was sitting in a police station with Scott Lucart and Jim Stock on the other side of the planet. I mean, during this past week, I mean, you can get anywhere on this planet within a 48-hour period. It took me 24 hours to get 
all the way on the other side of the earth. It's not tough. And what we see is all of this stuff just waiting in line, just ready to be fulfilled. And yet what is so sad is there are people on this planet that look at all of that and say, but that really doesn't affect me. And I, I just want to ask you, if nothing else today, would you just consider the things that you have heard? Could I challenge you to just get into the Bible and begin to see if these things be so, while you still have the time, while you still are able, as Psalm 2 says, to now call upon His name? Let's bow our heads together. If you're here today and you've never received the Lord Jesus Christ, <clears throat> if if you'd like to talk with someone about the things that you've heard, or maybe it sparked some questions, maybe some of you are here saying, what, what, what do I have to do in order to come into this relationship with God that you keep talking about? As our service is concluded, our pastors are going to be up on either side of the front of this room, and we're inviting you today that if God is speaking to your heart, would you come and talk to one of these men? If you're a lady, we'll have a lady that'll, that'll get with you. We'll take you to a, a room, a private room. You don't have to be on display. But we'd love to talk to you about the things that God has been talking to you about today. And so would you please, today, if God is speaking to your heart, would you respond to what he's saying to you? And Lord, I, I want to ask you now to do what I, I am incapable of doing. You have called me to preach your word, and I have I've sought to do that diligently today. But you are the one that draws people to your Son. And I pray now that the Spirit of God would take the Word of God to the hearts of people here and convict them of sin and your righteousness and the judgment that is inevitable and will soon come on this planet. And Lord, I pray that they would respond to your mercy and grace as it's extended to them today prior to this awful time of judgment. And Lord, I pray for those of us that do know you that we would never come to the place to where we would be hardened to these things by the accumulation of knowledge. May these things put an urgency behind our mission. May we seek earnestly to reach people while there's still time. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.